there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Make for the obelisk. The wood should give her some cover in case anyone's watching. We're almost there. Is your parachute ready? Of course. If I can't find Yosef... Stick to your primary mission. Get to the university. Find the scientists. Yes, sir. I'll radio Berlin as soon as I have them. Good luck. The Fuhrer is counting on you. Go! Now! This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all of their ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Unsolved Murders, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all other ParCast originals on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is our third and final episode on Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm. Two weeks ago, we began with the 1943 discovery of Bella, the unidentified skeleton of a woman found in a hollow tree in Hagley Wood. Last week, we explored the murder of Charles Walton, which became tied to Bella's death when both crimes were said to involve witchcraft and occult rituals. Today will wrap up both mysterious murders. On April 18, 1943, four boys found the skeletal remains of a woman inside a hollow tree in Hagley Wood, a small forest in the rural West Midlands region of England. Investigators immediately threw themselves into the task of identifying the body. They knew that the woman was around five feet tall, close to 35 years old, and that she had most likely died sometime during the summer of 1941. But after pouring through thousands of missing persons files, they had failed to come up with a single match. As 1943 drew to a close, strange messages written in white chalk began popping up in a number of West Midland towns. They asked a bizarre, almost taunting question. Who put Bella in the witch elm? The messages rejuvenated the public interest in the case and inspired a rash of new theories about who Bella may have been. The bizarre manner in which her body was hidden led some to speculate that she had been killed as part of an occult ritual. This theory gained credence when the late professor Margaret Murray, a renowned archaeologist and lecturer, publicized her belief that Bella had been killed 
by a coven of witches. And if Margaret Murray's word hadn't been enough to get the gossip mills churning, a second murder soon added fuel to the rumors of witchcraft. On February 14, 1945, a 74-year-old farmhand named Charles Walton was brutally slain in Lower Quinton, 30 miles from Hagley Wood. The arthritic old man had been stabbed through the face and pinned to the ground with a pitchfork. His throat had been repeatedly slashed with a pruning hook, which was still buried in his throat when he was found. His body was riddled with cuts and wounds from both weapons, and his head had been bludgeoned with his own walking stick. Scotland Yard deployed one of its best murder squad detectives, Officer Robert Fabian, to lead the investigation. From the moment he arrived in the sleepy rural hamlet of Lower Quinton, something seemed off. Fabian would later describe the strange hostility he met at the hands of the villagers in his three memoirs, Fabian of the Yard, London After Dark, and The Anatomy of a Crime. We made our investigation in the village from door to door. There were lowered eyes, a reluctance to speak except talk of bad crops, a heifer that died in a ditch. But what that had to do with Charles Walton, nobody would say. The situation worsened when the detective ran afoul of local superstition. Word got around that Fabian had encountered a large black dog on Meon Hill, near the spot where Charles Walton was killed. People began to whisper that he had seen the ghost. In England at the time, large black dogs were seen as bad omens. The few villagers who were still willing to talk had strange stories to tell. Fabian heard tales that Charles Walton spoke to birds, that he was a horse whisperer, or that he was clairvoyant. From an old text, Fabian learned about the medieval practice of stakung, or staking a witch in order to reverse the effects of their curses on local farmland. The description sounded eerily similar to the murder of Charles Walton. The old man's body had been littered with cuts and puncture wounds from a pitchfork and pruning hook. And it also sounded like yet another murder. Seventy years earlier, an old woman from the nearby town of Lower Compton had been stabbed to death with a pitchfork. Afterwards, her killer admitted that he killed her because she was a witch. A Scotland Yard detective didn't put much stock in these stories and chose to search for a more common motivation for the murder. So far, Fabian's prime suspect was Alfred Potter, Charles Walton's employer and owner of the farm where he had died. Potter had become strangely agitated when he overheard the officers speak of fingerprinting the murder weapons. Even more suspiciously, his account of the day of the murder kept shifting. At first, he said that he saw Walton working in the field around 12.20 p.m., but didn't go over to talk to him because he had to attend to a heifer that had drowned in a ditch. Later, he changed his story to say that he went home to read the paper and that the problem with the heifer didn't come up until around 3 p.m. This left his actions at the time of the murder essentially unaccounted for. But there was a major problem that made it difficult to see Potter as the culprit. He had no apparent motive for killing Walton. In fact, Fabian had yet to establish a reason why anyone would have killed the old farmhand, especially in such a violent fashion. He did, however, have a theory. About 200 pounds sterling of Charles Walton's money seemed to be missing. After talking with some of Alfred Potter's other employees, Fabian learned that the farmer had had difficulty paying some of his employees in the past and seemed to have money problems of his own. Was it possible that he had failed to pay Walton and that it had led to some kind of confrontation between the two men? Had Potter borrowed the 200 pounds sterling from Walton and been unable to pay? But the extremely violent manner in which Walton was killed made this seem unlikely. And Charles Walton's niece, Edith, did not believe that her uncle had lent anyone money. Try as he might, the Scotland Yard detective had failed to find a logical explanation for the murder. I'm inquiring about the late Charles Walton. He's been dead and buried a month now. What are you worried about? 
Hello, Fabian. No luck, I take it. None. What about you, Spooner? There was something interesting, actually. It seems we're not the only ones asking about Charles Walton. What do you mean? There's a woman in town, uh, Professor Margaret Murray. A number of people say she's been hanging around the pubs. Very keen on the Walton murder, it seems. Any particular reason why? With her, it can only be one thing. She was in the papers a fair bit, back when they had that Bella business. You know, the woman they found buried in the tree near Hagley. Murray put it down to witches. So she's one of those. I would have expected an academic to... What the devil was that? I, I, I didn't see. I swear, it, it came out of nowhere. Well, I suppose this proves it wasn't a ghost. It's done for, isn't it? <sighs> Unfortunately, yes. Let me see that. One day, the police officers were driving on the outskirts of Lower Quinton when a large black dog darted out into the street in front of them. They swerved, but failed to avoid hitting and killing the animal. The next day, a second one of Alfred Potter's heifers drowned in a ditch on Meon Hill. Fabian felt an immediate shift in the villagers' attitudes toward the police. While the locals had been far more friendly toward Fabian before, they now bordered on hostile. Fabian had now been in Lower Quinton nearly a month, and there had been no new leads for weeks. No one was talking to him. The Scotland Yard detective was forced to admit that if anyone was going to move the case forward, it was not going to be him. On April 5, 1945, Detective Superintendent Alex Spooner was summoned to Fabian's temporary office at the Stratford-upon-Avon precinct. You wanted to see me, Fabian? Uh, yes, Spooner, come in. I'm just finishing up. Hang on. Where's the map of the Walton crime scene gone? I had it taken to your office with the rest of it. Here. It's yours now. The Walton case report? The very thorough inquiries made in this case have so far uncovered no evidence on which action can be taken. But we were so close. Alfred Potter, the missing money. The suspicions attached to Potter are well appreciated, but there is no real evidence to connect him with the murder itself and no reasonable motive can be found for his committing it. What's more, the murder was of a particularly violent and brutal character and there is not the slightest evidence that Potter is of a violent disposition, or that he and Walton ever quarreled. As for the money, it may well be related to Walton's death in some way, but all our exhaustive inquiries have failed to show where the connection is. But the killer is still out there! We can't just let them go free! We cannot. But I'm no use to you if no one will speak to me. Every day I'm here, I turn Lower Quinton against you more. This is it, then. I'm afraid so. It's been a pleasure, sir. Believe me, Alec. The pleasure is mine. While the investigation was now out of Fabian's hands, he still had a number of lingering questions. Fortunately for him, the person best suited to answer them was staying at an inn not far from the Stratford-upon-Avon precinct. Thanks for meeting me, Professor. Of course, Detective. Can I get you something? An ale, if they'll give it to you. They don't usually serve me here. Too many run-ins with black dogs, I'm afraid. The Black Shuck. That's what they call it here. But England has no shortage of phantom dogs. The Barghest, the Church Grim, Harry Jack, Maudie Dew. They're all very bad omens. I should have enough bad luck to last a lifetime, then. Now, what I asked you here about... The departed Charles Walton? You wanted my expert opinion on his murder. I'm curious what you thought about it. Doesn't hurt to look at things from another point of view from time to time? Indeed. Well, obviously, the most significant aspect of Charles Walton's murder is the date. Valentine's Day. How is that significant? Well, I'm not surprised you haven't solved it yet, if you haven't even gotten that far. As you know, 
The pre-Gregorian calendar is 13 days behind our current one. Going by the old calendar, Charles Walton died on February 1st. Which is... Embalk! The Celtic Midwinter Festival? A time to prepare the Earth for the coming spring. You see, when life is taken out of the ground through farming, that life must be replaced. Replaced how, exactly? The old way. Blood sacrifice. Stay cool. Charles Walton was not the first victim of the devil worshippers, and he won't be the last. I expect you know about Anne Tennant, and of course there's Bella. Bella? That's what they call the... the woman they found in the tree in Hagley Wood, isn't it? Was she staked? Only the skeleton was left, so one cannot be sure. The very act of placing a body in the hollow of a tree is associated with witchcraft. The cult of tree worship is an ancient one, and it's linked with sacrifices. As for the chalk writing on the walls in Midland towns, these may have been simply the work of a hoaxer or hoaxers. But Lubella, one of the names used, is a witch's name. And for that matter, so is Bella. Coincidence, perhaps, but strange all the same. Yes, strange indeed. Thank you, Professor. This has been most enlightening. On Detective Fabian's last day in Lower Quinton, he allegedly learned that a black dog had been hung from a lone oak tree on top of Meon Hill, only a short walk from the spot where Charles Walton had died. The Scotland Yard detective did not know what it meant or who was behind it, but he had had enough of bad omens. He boarded the next train back to London and didn't look back. Coming up, we turn our attention back to Bella of Hagley Wood. Now, back to the story. On April 5th, 1945, famous Scotland Yard detective Robert Fabian had finally given up on his investigation into Charles Walton's suspicious, possibly occult-motivated murder. The town simply wasn't willing to talk. While the investigation into Walton's death had stalled, there was another arcane cold case that was just about to see new information come to light. In 1943, four teenage boys found the skeleton of a woman buried in the hollow of a hazel tree in the West Midlands area of England. While the disturbing discovery shocked the local community, it likely would have made an even larger stir had England not been in the midst of World War II. Despite the distraction of frequent bombings, investigators threw their efforts into solving the case. But after two years, They had not even managed to identify the body. On April 30, 1945, Adolf Hitler committed suicide during the Battle of Berlin. One week later, on May 8, Germany surrendered, bringing an end to the war in Europe. After nearly six years, the young men of Britain came home to a hero's welcome. Among them was Warwick Plant, a young man from Briarley who had gone off to fight in World War II. When he came home from the war, he saw the cryptic messages about Bella and the Witch Elm written around town. Warwick, you're home! Hey, sis! When the devil did you get so tall? You've been gone almost two years. What did you expect? Tell me everything. How many Nazis did you kill? Uh, You don't wait around, do you? Hey, one question. On the drive up, I saw this message scrawled on the wall on High Street, and then another on the crown. Something about a witch? Who put Bella in the witch elm? Sorry? That's what it said. Who put Bella in the witch elm? Someone keeps writing it all over town. Bella's that girl they found in the tree in Hagley Wood. Oh, but of course, you wouldn't have heard about that. Uh, Tell me over a biscuit, will you? I'm famished. The story of the skeleton from Hagley Wood and the name Bella sparked a memory from before the young soldier had left for war. Sometime in 1941, a small, young woman had come into his parents' pub, asking to speak to the owner. What do you want? We don't need beggars in here. 
If you're not drinking, you'll have to go. Excuse me, ma'am, but I'm not a beggar. I'm a musician. We don't need musicians either. But you've got a piano. And you don't even have to pay me. Just let me play and sing for tips. You won't regret it. I was on tour in Europe before the war broke out. Well, you can give it a try. Warwick, come show our guest. What did you say your name was? Bella, ma'am. Get Bella set up on the piano. We'll be trying her out on a provisional basis. Hope you can hold a tune, Bella. Or this lot is liable to start throwing vegetables. Warwick's mother agreed to let Bella play and sing for tips, and over the following months, the two women became friends. At some point, Warwick thought his mother had given Bella blue crepe-soled shoes to replace a pair that were falling apart. Warwick knew that Bella performed at a number of other pubs in the area, including one in Stawbridge, closer to Hagley Wood. On more than one occasion, she arrived at work with bruises and a black eye. She told the plants that her landlord had beaten her. Then, one day, Bella stopped showing up. Warwick's mother sent him to Stawbridge to see if he could find her, but there was no sign of the musician, and he returned home empty-handed. A short time later, Warwick headed off to war. He didn't think of Bella again until he arrived home to find her name graffitied around his hometown. After learning this, Warwick's sister headed to the police station to report her brother's story. His information was taken, and the account was added to the official police file, but it seems that no one ever followed up or interviewed Warwick himself. The timing and location of the woman's supposed disappearance matched details of the skeleton in Hadley Wood, but it doesn't appear that any effort was made to check the veracity of the story. Police were still making efforts to determine Bella's identity, including searching for the members of a Romani family that had stayed in the area. But for one reason or another, the police did not find this tip credible. The details of the case had been circulated in area newspapers for months. Warwick and his sister would have known the name Bella and that the skeleton was found with crepe-soled shoes. It's likely the police thought Warwick or his sister were making the story up for the attention. But while they had dismissed this tip, it seemed they had another possible clue at their disposal. Unfortunately, they only discovered this lead after it was too late for them to follow up on it. While sorting through old police reports, the investigators came across an intriguing incident that had occurred in the summer of 1941, around the same time that Bella was believed to have gone missing. Late one night, an officer of the Home Guard was patrolling the roads around Hagley Wood when he came across a car on the side of the road. As he approached the car, the officer saw that the driver was a man in a Royal Air Force uniform. A woman was lying across the back seat with a coat draped over her body, completely covering her torso and head. Evening, officer. Identification? Is she all right? Uh, She just about died of embarrassment when you drove up. I'm afraid I'm in for it. You folks find somewhere more private next time. Families use this road too, you know. We will. Thank you, officer. Good night. At the time, the officer believed that he had interrupted a romantic moment between the driver and his passenger, and that the woman had covered herself in the coat because she was naked. But years later, when the police discovered the incident report, they considered a darker possibility. Could the woman in the back seat have been Bella, perhaps already dead, and the driver, her killer? If it had been them, it meant that the police had narrowly missed their best shot at solving the case. It had now been several years since the corpse was discovered in the tree in Hagleywood, and investigators were no closer to identifying the body, much less finding the killer. For nearly a decade, there were no new advancements in the case. Then, in 1953, a journalist named Wilfred Byford Jones began researching the Hagley Wood mystery for his column in the Wolverhampton Express and Star, which he published under the pseudonym Quester. He was fascinated by the macabre details of the skeleton's tree burial 
and the cryptic messages that appeared around West Midland towns, neither of which had ever been explained. Byford Jones began interviewing the residents of Hagley Wood, hoping to uncover some detail that the police had missed. He even managed to track down Tommy Willits, one of the four boys who first found Bella's skeleton wedged into the tree on April 18, 1943. I'm with the Wolverhampton Express and Star. Does Tommy Willits still live here? It's Tom. What do you want? We're doing a piece about the Hagley Woods mystery. I'd love to ask you... I haven't got anything to say that hasn't been in the papers a dozen times. Wait. Fine, if you don't have any new information. I just wanted to hear your story. The night you found her. I thought maybe we could go back to the tree. Maybe get people talking about Bella again. Finally find out what really happened to her. You must be curious. Not really. Then how about as a favor for a fellow soldier? RAF? Lieutenant Colonel in the British Army. I was at Berlin. I know a fellow from Dudley who was stationed there. Still has nightmares about it almost every night. Well, that's the thing, Tommy. People think we left the war on the continent, but we brought it back with us. No one who stayed home can really understand. That's why we have to stick together. I suppose you're right. So you'll show me the way to that witch elm? I'm sorry, sir. I'd like to help you. But I don't see the war when I close my eyes. I see that tree. I see her. Good luck with your story. Neither Tommy Willits nor any of the other boys who had found Bella were interested in discussing the night they found Bella's skeleton, but Byford Jones wasn't giving up. He printed an ad in the Express and Star offering to pay 100 pounds sterling to anyone with information that helped solve the mystery. It didn't take long for the responses to start pouring in. Bella had never been truly forgotten in the West Midlands, and the new articles by Byford Jones had awakened interest in the old mystery. Well, the vast majority of the tips were obvious false leads and dead ends, but one letter in particular caught the journalist's attention. Finish your articles regarding the Witch Elm crime by all means. They are interesting to the readers, but you'll never solve the mystery. One person who could give the answers is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The only clues that I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch and alive illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. The letter was signed Anna with no last name or address. The postmark indicated only that it had been sent from Claverley, Wolverhampton on November 18, 1953. While Wilfred Byford Jones couldn't be sure that Anna wasn't merely trying to claim the reward, the fact that she had not provided a last name or address intrigued him. For the next few weeks, the journalist used his column in the Express and Star to implore Anna of Claverley to come forward and admit everything she knew about Bella. To his great surprise, the woman did finally contact him, and after some more pleading, agreed to accompany him to the police station to tell her whole story. But her name wasn't Anna, and she wasn't from Claverley. She was Una Hainsworth of Warwickshire, and previously Una Mossop. She had married her former husband, Jack Mossop, in the early 30s when they were both young teenagers. After Britain declared war on Germany in 1939, Jack took a job at a factory in Birmingham that produced munitions for the Royal Air Force. The position kept Jack from being drafted, but it didn't pay particularly well. Una was therefore understandably suspicious when Jack started wearing lots of expensive clothing, including a Royal Air Force officer's uniform that he shouldn't have had. But Jack's clothes weren't the only thing that had changed. He had started spending a lot of time at pubs with a new friend, a wealthy Dutchman Una knew only as Von Ralt. Una didn't like Von Ralt much, and she liked Jack's drinking even less. But as time wore on, she began to suspect that there was something more sinister afoot than late nights spent at the pubs. 
She believed that the Dutchman von Ralt was a Nazi spy and that Jack was passing him information on the munitions factory where he worked in exchange for money. Una never found out whether her suspicions were correct. Eventually, she got fed up with Jack's drinking and threw him out of the house. The separation didn't last long. Late one night during the spring of 1941, Una woke to the sound of someone moving around in her living room. Who's there? Jack? What are you doing here? You scared me half to death. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave you alone? God, you're drunk, aren't you? She won't leave me alone. God, why won't she leave me alone? She's supposed to be dead. Who's dead? Jack, what's the matter? What happened? Jack was drunk, extremely agitated, and raving about a murder. When he finally sobered up, he turned silent and refused to say what had happened. Una decided not to throw Jack out again, but she could tell that something was different about her husband. For one thing, he seemed to have stopped hanging out with Von Ralt, but he was eerily quiet. Except during his nightmares. No. Leave me alone. Jack? Jack, wake up. Jack! (gasps) Every night, Jack would toss and turn in his sleep, moaning incoherently about a woman staring at him from a tree. Each day he seemed more unhinged than the day before. Una begged Jack to tell her what was going on. Eventually, he wasn't able to keep it in any longer. Please, Jack, I know something's wrong. Tell me what happened. All right, I'll tell you. Maybe she'll leave me alone at last if I do. I'd been out for a drive after work, wound up at the Littleton Arms. Von Ralt was there with his Dutch lady friend, and they were arguing. No idea about what always spoke Dutch when they fought. Jack told Una about a night he'd spent out with the Dutchman and his girlfriend. After a few drinks at a local pub, Von Ralt suggested the trio take a drive out to Hagley Hill. As they drove, the argument between Von Ralt and his girlfriend grew steadily more vitriolic. They were shouting at one another by that point. I just kept driving, then I heard her scream. I looked in the mirror and... Well, I I couldn't see much, to be honest, but I think he had his hands around her neck. But you stopped, didn't you, Jack? Yes, I stopped. He told me to pull over, and when I looked in the back, she... She wasn't moving. According to Jack, Von Ralt had attacked his girlfriend, leaving her either unconscious or dead. Then the Dutchman had ordered Jack to help him carry the body. We took her out into the woods a ways. She was heavier than I thought, and I kept dropping her. But Von Ralt seemed to have a spot in mind. Soon enough, we came to a tree, huge and wicked-looking, like some kind of exploded bird's nest, like it was angry. We put her in deep inside the hollow. Von Ralt said it would teach her a lesson when she woke up, but I knew she wasn't waking up. (laughs) Jack hadn't been positive whether the woman had been alive or dead when they left her. At the time, Una didn't care. She assumed the story was nonsense, the ravings of her husband's sick mind. Jack seemed to be incredibly unhinged, and she doubted that any part of the story was true. At least, not until 1943, when she read the news that four boys had found a skeleton buried in a tree in Hagley Wood. The police were skeptical, but intrigued by Una's story, and did their best to corroborate as much as they could. But their investigation was halted by one major problem. 
there was no way to question Jack Mossop. After telling Una his story in 1941, Jack had steadily grown more unhinged. He stopped sleeping altogether, and his drinking worsened. Eventually, he became so unstable that Una had no choice but to take their son and leave. In 1942, after they divorced, Jack Mossop checked himself into a mental hospital in Stafford. He died there a few months later, at the age of 29. Jack had never told Una the name of the woman who he and Von Rolt had buried, but Una believed that whoever she was had gotten her revenge in the end. Una Hainsworth's last memory of her husband was of a broken man driven to madness by constant nightmares. Up until the end of his life, his dreams were haunted by visions of the woman's decaying face, staring at him from the hollow of the tree. Coming up, we examine two more theories casting Bella as a Nazi spy. Now, back to the story. In 1953, the story of Bella in the Witch Elm re-entered the public consciousness after a journalist for the Wolverhampton Express and Star tracked down a woman who claimed to have known the killers. The woman, who was named Una Hainsworth, believed that Bella had been buried in the tree in Hagley Wood by her former husband, Jack Mossop, and a Dutchman named Von Ralt. She further speculated that before the murder, the trio had been passing British secrets to the Nazis. The allegations of a Nazi spy ring operating in the West Midlands were not as completely paranoid as they might sound. At this point, Birmingham was a manufacturing center for the British armed forces. This made it a major target for German Luftwaffe bombers, who attacked the city dozens of times between 1940 and 1943 in what would become known as the Birmingham Blitz. Any information about what was being manufactured in the factories or where in the city they were located would have been useful to the Germans. But there was something of even greater value in Birmingham. In 1939, two Jewish scientists named Otto Frisch and Rudolf Peierls arrived in the city after fleeing Nazi Germany. As German citizens, they were not allowed to participate in any of the official war-related experiments going on at Birmingham University, but they nevertheless began conducting secret research into atomic fission. This research eventually made its way into the hands of Winston Churchill, who passed it to the U.S. government. It later became the basis for the Manhattan Project, the secret U.S. program that produced the first atomic bomb. The proximity of the Birmingham munitions factories and the research facilities at Birmingham University, coupled with the fact that German bombers could regularly be seen flying overhead, led to endless speculation about Nazi spies in the area. People regularly reported seeing paratroopers dropping down out of the sky into the West Midlands. While most of these reports were groundless, it is a fact that the Nazi military intelligence arm, the Abwehr, did make several attempts to install spies in England. In 1942, a poor Dutchman named Johannes Marinus Dronkers was recruited by the Abwehr and sent to England as a spy, but was caught and arrested the moment he set foot in the country. He was sentenced to death for espionage and hanged on December 31, 1942, in Wandsworth Prison. Dronkers' complete failure as a spy didn't keep him from finding his way into Bella's story. In 1968, a writer named Donald McCormick claimed to have found evidence of a woman named Clara Bella Dronkers who had a small build and crooked teeth and was part of a Nazi spy ring in the West Midlands. He believed that it was her skeleton that Tommy Willits and the three other boys had found in Hagley Wood. While these details seem compelling at first glance, there has never been any evidence put forward to show that Clara Bella Dronkers actually existed. Johannes Dronkers did have a wife, but her name was Elisa, not Clara Bella or Bella. More importantly, she died in Amsterdam on December 18, 1944. 
almost a year after Bella's skeleton was found. While McCormick does not appear to have found the real Bella, the theory that she was the wife or girlfriend of a Nazi spy or part of a spy ring never completely went away. In 2009, the British intelligence agency, MI5, declassified files on a Gestapo agent named Josef Jacobs, who parachuted into England from a German bomber on January 31, 1941. Jacobs had never practiced such a jump before in his life, and he injured his foot while leaping out of the plane. When he touched down in a potato field near the village of Ramsey, Huntingtonshire, the impact shattered his already damaged ankle. Jacobs spent the night in agony, sprawled out beneath his parachute. By 8.30 a.m. the next morning, he couldn't bear the pain anymore. He fired several shots from his Mauser automatic pistol into the air and waited for someone to find him. It didn't take long before a pair of farmers came to investigate the gunshots. In short order, Jacobs was loaded into the back of a horse-drawn cart and ferried to the Ramsey police station, where he was arrested on suspicion of espionage. Jacobs was eventually transferred to Wandsworth Prison and then to the Tower of London to be executed. On August 15, 1941, he was led out into the firing range between the tower's inner and outer walls. Because his ankle had not yet healed, he was made to sit in a wooden chair to which he was bound. Yosef Jacobs, you have been found guilty of espionage and have been sentenced to death by firing squad. Is there anything you wish to say now, before God and man? Shoot straight, Tommies. Ready? Aim. Fire. According to the declassified MI5 files, the items in Jakob's possession were logged when he was arrested. Aside from his Mauser, he was carrying a radio transmitter, some maps of the area, a flashlight, chocolate, cigarettes, and a picture postcard bearing the photograph of a woman. The back of the postcard bore a handwritten message that read, My dear, I love you forever. Your Clara, Landau, July 1940. Jacobs told the home guard officers that the woman in the photograph was of his lover, a cabaret singer named Clara Bauerle. Later, during interrogation, he admitted that she had also been recruited by the Obvir and was supposed to join him by parachuting into the Birmingham area. But since he had not been able to make radio contact, he expected that her mission would now be aborted. When the details came to light in 2009, Followers of the Hagley Wood mystery were certain they had finally found Bella's true identity. Unlike Clara Bella Dronkers, Clara Bauerla was very real. She had been a singer for the Bernhardt Etta Orchestra. In 1941, she would have been 35 years old, the same age that pathologist James Webster had specified for Bella of Hagley Wood. And that wasn't the end of the coincidences. Around 1930, Clara Bauerla spent two years touring as a singer in the West Midlands area. Because English audiences found her name difficult to pronounce, she was apparently known as Clarabella. For a brief moment, followers of the mystery were certain that Bella had been found. But it was not to be. A few facts prove that Clara Bauerla cannot be Bella. Clara Bauerla was six feet tall, while the skeleton found in Hagley Wood was only five feet tall. Perhaps more importantly, hospital records show the singer had died in Berlin on December 16, 1942. With Clara Barla out of the picture as a potential Bella, the case remains to this day unsolved. The police file on the Hagley Woods murder was officially closed in 2005. Investigators determined that the passage of time, lack of new leads, and the fact that the culprits were almost certainly deceased meant that the mystery was essentially unsolvable. At the time, investigators noted that the murder victim could hypothetically be identified through modern DNA profiling, 
which would involve comparing samples from the skeleton against the profiles of living persons to establish lineage. But doing so is unfortunately impossible because Bella's remains are missing. The skeleton spent many years at Birmingham University in the care of pathologist James Webster. When he retired, it passed to his successor, Dr. Griffiths. But at some point before 2005, the skeleton disappeared. Some followers of the case have seen this as evidence of a conspiracy, that Bella was in fact a Nazi spy or some other important person. But the most likely explanation is that the remains were accidentally discarded during a move or simply put in storage and forgotten. This fact serves as a final connection to the murder case of Charles Walton. It's believed that Walton was buried in the graveyard of St. Swithin's, the same graveyard that he passed through each day on his way to Potter's Farm. But at some point, the tombstones to both his and Alfred Potter's graves were removed, possibly to keep curious tourists from searching them out. As in the case of Bella, Charles Walton's murder was never solved. Not for any lack of trying, though. For years, Detective Alex Spooner visited Lower Quinton on Valentine's Day. He wandered the streets and visited the local pubs, making sure he could be seen by the locals so that the murder was never forgotten. In 1960, Charles Walton's missing pocket watch was finally discovered during a construction project behind the victim's cottage. The location is somewhat puzzling, as the watch was believed to have been on Walton's person when he was killed. Supposedly, the watch case was found to contain a piece of colored glass. It was identified by the locals as a witch glass that could be used to protect the owner from evil thoughts directed their way. While some have contended that Fabian died believing that Alfred Potter was the culprit, his own memoirs suggest otherwise. In his final book, Anatomy of a Crime, published in 1970, he explicitly states that witchcraft played a role in the murder. I advise anybody who is tempted at any time and on any pretext to venture into black magic, witchcraft, Satanism, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was so clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. His conclusion echoed the opinions of Professor Margaret Murray, published in 1950 in the Birmingham Post. There are still remnants of witchcraft in Great Britain, and I believe that Charles Walton was one of the people sacrificed. The sacrifices are carried out by people who still believe in a religion practiced in Britain before Christianity, whom we call devil worshipers. They still practice black magic. Today, skeptics have little trouble discounting both of these opinions. After her death in 1963 at the age of 100, Margaret Murray's writings on the witch cults of Wester community came under increasing fire from her peers. Today, the academic community largely rejects her thesis that the victims of the medieval witch trials were followers of a common religion, pagan or otherwise. But what do we think? Do we believe that Charles Walton's murder was part of, as Fabian said, a pagan rite? Personally, I don't think so. Well, the more likely explanation is that he was killed by his employer, Alfred Potter. He had the ability to commit the crime and, his behavior during the investigation suggests a guilty conscience. While Fabian didn't find a clear motive, Potter's money problems and Walton's missing money suggest that there could have been some monetary motivation for the crime. What do you think? I'm sticking with Fabian to an extent. I don't think his killers were witches themselves, but I do think there's evidence that many members of the community believed Walton was a witch. They might have committed the murder believing it was necessary to stop him from blasting their crops. Well, I think the same goes for Bella and the Hagleywood mystery. Witchcraft and pagan rites make for entertaining stories, but they likely didn't play a role there either. I think Margaret Murray was grasping at straws by making the connection between the name Bella, the tree burial, and the missing hand bones. 
I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Bella was a Romani traveler. Agreed. That theory seems to have been based entirely on the prejudices of the day. And as for the theory that Bella was a Nazi spy, both the Clara Bella Drunkers and the Clara Bauerle theories have been thoroughly debunked, leaving only Una Hainsworth's story about her husband Jack Mossop and the Dutchman von Ralt. While Jack wasn't available to confirm his role in von Ralt's girlfriend's death, it remains one of the most plausible explanations. And interestingly, it's one of the only theories we've heard that doesn't try to draw a connection to the name Bella. Remember, the police had no reason to think the victim was named Bella until the graffiti messages began showing up. It's possible, perhaps even likely, that the writer was a prankster with no special knowledge of the case. I suppose it's more plausible than witches or Nazi spies. Uh, we may never know the truth for certain, but while the mystery is still unsolved, Bella is far from forgotten. The messages about Bella of Hagley Wood never stopped appearing in West Midlands towns, though they eventually switched from chalk to spray paint. The words, who put Bella in the witch elm, first appeared on the obelisk on Hagley Hill during the 1970s. They were eventually removed, only to return in 1999. Try to remove them, and it will only be a matter of time until they reappear again. At least as long as the question, who put Bella in the witch elm, remains unanswered. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, Samantha Moore, Alastair Murden, and Jack Shulruff. 